Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is our last session for this book. I've really enjoyed going through this. Uh, 1 Corinthians is such a, a hopeful message, um, being it's given to a real local church with real problems, um, real issues that they were facing, and those issues are dressed, uh, addressed sometimes very specifically. Uh, it makes the message of the gospel all the more powerful and relevant as it's presented in 1 Corinthians. A recap of the book, but I don't think we have time. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you could probably get a dozen sermons out of this. So uh, to, to be fair, uh, we're only going to kind of get an overview of what's in chapter 15. Um, but, but I want to go through it as much as possible and at least get an overview of what Paul was addressing here at the end of his letter to the Corinthian church. So we're going to read um, verses 1 through 28, and then we'll lead, read the last uh, paragraph, verses 50 through 58, to kind of get an overview of what chapter 15 is about. So beginning in verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach, which I received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred others at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I, I persecuted the church of God. And by the grace of God, I am him. And his grace toward me, contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is not true, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to, to be destroyed 
is death, things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Verse 50, I tell you this, others, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Sting is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, I don't know if you remember what Paul started out saying to the Corinthians, but in light of the things that he had heard about the church at Corinth and the the questions that they had asked him and the letter they sent to him, it was really amazing to read um, in the beginning of the letter that he starts out saying, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of Jesus Christ. That is an amazing thing to say to a church that had the problems that Paul saw in Corinth that he was aware of in in the church of Corinth. But his hope for Corinth was not in in the church. It was in Christ, in the work that he had accomplished for them and in the power of Christ to work in them to will and to do the father's pleasure. That's why he could write such a hopeful letter to such a messed up church. And that's why first Corinthians It's such a beautiful thing for us to have in our possession because oftentimes we find ourselves confronted with a reality that seems to to almost contradict the reality that we see that God says about the church, what God says about the church. We talked about that a little bit last Sunday, how we often see kind of a different picture of the local church with its problems and like the way Jesus addressed the, the churches in relation. This was first century Christianity. And he told them, you know, you're neither cold or hot. I'm going to spit you out of out of my mouth. He told them that if you don't repent quickly, I'm going to remove your candlestick from its place. And he addressed specific problems that had come up in the church. But then he also shows how that the church is going to be presented to Jesus Jesus is going to present the church spotless, without spot or wrinkle. And that's what he sees, and that's what he's working toward. And so Paul brings a final reminder to the church at Corinth. And he saves the most important for for last. 
He says, I would remind you of this gospel that we've preached to you. After all the other reminders and corrections and, and uh, uh, the, the rebukes and exhortations that he had given to the Corinthians, he saved the most important for last. I want to remind you of the gospel that we preached to you. We've already laid this foundation at the beginning of the book. He talked about the importance of the cross and how that the true wisdom of God was on display through the cross of Jesus. But the gospel has to believe in it. It must be believed in its entirety. Otherwise, it begins to fall apart. If we take part of it and we leave another part out, it begins to fall apart. And that's what some of the Corinthians had done. Yes, they might have believed in the, the physical death of Jesus. And maybe they even believed in his physical resurrection. But now some of them were saying, well, what about us? We don't believe there's going to be any resurrection for these bodies. And so, according to some of the other teachings that had kind of crept into the church, they didn't really believe it was that important what you did in your body. Since this body was just going to die and it was going to go into the ground and that was it. And Paul tells them, tells them that's not the case. There is going to be a resurrection. This gospel which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. This is a progressive work that God's doing you as long as you hold on to it. Unless you believed in vain. Because if you let hope that was placed in this gospel that we preached to you, then your faith was in vain. It was no good. It was worthless. He says, for I delivered to you. And this, this word delivered is that same word that appears in chapter 11 when he talks about how he had received from the Lord. He delivered to them. And it's, a, it's the verb form of the, of the word that we saw earlier in chapter 11 where he says, you hold on to the traditions. That word traditions is actually the word passed on. It's something that was passed on. Here saying, I passed on what I received from the Lord. And here's the gospel in a nutshell. It hardly ever appears so concisely packaged as it does here. Christ died for our sins. He was buried, confirming his actual physical death. His body was placed into a tomb and he was raised from the dead. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So it was a fulfillment of prophecy. It was not just a series of random events, but this was a fulfillment of hundreds, hundreds of years of prophecy that had God had given. Moreover, his bodily firmed by Peter. He gives out, he gives a real name here. Real people saw the real physical resurrected Christ after he rose from the dead. And then he appeared to more than 500 people at one time. Even today, if you want a case to hold up well in court, there is no replacement for lots of physical eyewitnesses who all say the same thing. They say, yes, we saw what happened and this is what happened. And he's saying, we have the physical proof that Jesus rose bodily from the dead. After he died, he appeared to more than 500 people at one at one time. Most of them are still alive at the time he was writing this letter. He says most of them are still alive. Their witness is going abroad and it's confirmed by multiple witnesses who saw the same thing. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles again. And last of all, he appeared to me and 
Paul places a lot of authority. If you look through Philippians, the authority of his apostleship came from having seen the Lord personally. Jesus appeared to Paul and he commissioned him. And Paul says, this is what gives my message authority. It's not because it comes from me, but it's because it comes from God. And he, he says, last of all, he appeared to me. I'm the least of the apostles because I persecuted the church. After this witness was going out of the resurrection of Christ, Paul was one of the people who most adamantly opposed it. He was taking men and women and committing them to prison. But regardless of how it came to me, whether it was they or I, this is the essence of what we preach to you. And this is how you believe. This is what your faith was based in. There's the foundational truth of the resurrection of Jesus. And he says, if Christ was proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection? How can you say that there's no physical resurrection from the dead if Obviously, Jesus was raised up physically from the dead. There's no resurrection from the dead. Christ was not raised. And if Christ was not raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. What you believed in is worthless. We misrepresent God. Literally, we are bearing false witness about God if Christ was not raised. And you are still in your sins. Why does he say that? If all the sins of the world were placed on Christ and he destroyed the power of sin through his death, why does he say if Christ was not raised, then you are still in your sins? Moreover, those who died believing in Christ have perished. There's no hope for them. And by extension, we only have hope in this life. We're of all people most to be pitied because look at the way our lives are going. There's nothing enviable about it if our hope is in this life. You see, if Christ was not raised from the dead, there is no evidence that his sacrifice was effectual. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So the opposite of all the above points is true. Our preaching is not in vain. It's accomplishing what God meant for it to accomplish. Your faith is not in vain. Your faith is placed in a solid place because Jesus rose from the dead. We are bearing true witness of what happened. You are not in your sins anymore because Jesus rose from the dead. And those who died believing in Christ have hope. They have not perished. And if Christ was raised from the dead, and our hope is set on that future resurrection, then we are of all people most to be envied, even though our liable existence right now. Because Christ was raised as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, of the people who have died. Christ was just the first one to be raised. The rest are going to follow. Because as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Just as through Adam sin came to the world, and not just to Adam, but it came to everyone after him, so through Christ the resurrection from the dead 
comes to all. It's available to all who place their faith in Christ. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 20 says, May the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. Did you hear that? He brought Jesus. He raised Jesus up by his own blood. Evidence that the blood of Jesus was effectual. It was an effectual sacrifice. If Jesus would have sinned even once in his life, he would not have been raised from the dead. Death would have gained the upper hand. But the resurrection of Jesus, which was by his own blood, was effectual proof that the resurrection will happen, that death has been defeated and sin was defeated by the perfect life of Jesus. So the proof was here. Jesus was raised by his own blood, the proof of his sinless atonement, his sinless sacrifice for our sins. His resurrection activated the promise of that covenant. And then he says, but each in his own order. There's a sequence of events that was, hap- that was, that was to be expected, that we're waiting for. And this was one of the traps that the Corinthians had fallen into, was that they were looking at what's happening right now, and they were rationalizing according to what they were seeing right now, and they were concluding there must not be a resurrection from the dead. But each in his order. Don't let the fact that you don't see physical bodies being resurrected lead you to believe it won't happen. Do you know how many people Jesus raised from the dead during his time here on earth? The per death. How many people did he raise from the dead? Anybody know? Any guesses? Three? Three not counting himself. As, that's correct. So he raised three people from the dead. The, the widow's son. Because he had pity on her, um, Jairus' daughter, and then his friend Lazarus. That's kind of amazing that he only raised three people from the dead, given his 30-some years here on earth. But Paul is saying there's a sequence of events. And even though people around you are dropping like flies, they're, they're dying, and you don't see them come back to life, there's something that we're waiting for. At his coming... It's each in his order. First Christ, who's the first fruits. And then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. You know the little videos that pop up in your news feed and it always says, wait for it? That's, that's what he's saying. Wait for it. Wait for what's coming at the end. Don't look at what's happening now and base your faith, conform your faith to what you're seeing. Wait for what's been promised. Because if Jesus was raised from the dead, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ will also be raised. Then comes the end, when Jesus will deliver the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority, every power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Isn't that an interesting verse? He aggressive reign of Christ until... And that sounds like kind of like the end of his reign or of that segment of his reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. What I get from this, I think it's a reference to Psalm 
110, where the Lord says to my Lord, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You know what it says at the end of Mark? It says after Jesus had told the disciples his, his final words, it says he, was, he ascended into heaven and he went and sat down at the right hand of God. They knew full well that what he had accomplished on earth was part of this process of putting all the enemies of Christ under his feet. And now he is sitting at the right hand of God where God says to him, God the Father says, sit right here. Until I make all your enemies your footstool. This is really important for us to understand. Okay, so if if you uh, miss everything else in chapter 15, get this part here. God is subduing the enemies of Christ and putting them under his feet. Until the final judgment when all the enemies of Christ, all the principalities and, and authorities and powers... They're all going to be put under the feet of Jesus. And it says when that happens, when all his enemies have been subjected to him, then the son himself is going to be subjected to the father. Do you remember we talked about that uh, in chapter 11 where it talks about the son's subjection to the father where he always did the will of the father. He didn't do anything of his own. That is an inherent subjection. It's an inherent order in the Trinity. It's not just something that Jesus did for a while while he was here on earth in human form. But the son is subject to the father. And because of his perfect subjection, God has exalted him and given him a name that is above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, including his enemies. And so right now we see enemies that are at large. We see people mocking God. We see ideas that are opposed to what Jesus taught. And it seems like God is just holding off. He is. One day, all of those enemies, all of those ideas will come into subjection under Christ. Psalm 110 is a beautiful prophetic psalm. Take time to just sit down and read it sometime. Because it... it, It just goes through and it shows how God is going to take all his rulers and authorities and the chiefs of the earth. And he's going to put them under Christ very soon. We're about to see the fulfillment of that prophecy, but we haven't seen it yet. Yes, all of the enemies of Christ were defeated when Jesus died and rose again. But he is still allowing them to be at large. Working against his kingdom. But very soon they will be brought into subjection to Christ. And here's where Paul makes his point. He says the last enemy to be destroyed is what? Death. That's why people are still dying. Not been destroyed fully. People are still dying every day. Yes, the power of death has been removed. We don't. We don't uh, weep as those who don't have hope, but death is still working. The last enemy is to, to be destroyed is death. And as we wait for this final culmination of the promises of God, where all the enemies of Christ are put on under his feet, death still stares at us, cold and ugly. And Paul is saying, death cannot be the end. If what you Corinthians 
are saying is true. Death has the final word. And he's saying death is the enemy of Christ, so it can't have the final word. It's impossible. It has to be defeated in this all-encompassing victory that Jesus will win. See, they, because they denied the resurrection, they denied the resurrection because they had a very small view of the victorious accomplishments of Christ. If Jesus died just to make your life a little better, you really think that was worth it? They didn't see the victorious king that was, that was portrayed in Psalm 110. They saw him as someone who came to make their life here on earth a little better. And then death was still going to have the final word. Because, and Paul argues that this is absurd. It's absurd to think this. So he appeals to the centrality of faith in the resurrection as part of the hope that the Corinthians have. And he says some interesting things. He says, if the dead are not raised, otherwise, why are people baptized for the dead if the dead are not raised? Now, there's, I read somewhere that there's over 200 explanations that have been given for this verse. I don't know what it means. I don't know what practice he was referring to, but it is interesting. He says, why are people baptized for the dead? So it seems like there was some kind of ritual, and I suspect that some of the same people who were teaching the Corinthian church that there was no physical resurrection from the dead were all participating in these, these uh, baptismal rites where, where you were baptized for someone who had died. I don't know. I'm simply speculating. But he's saying, if people aren't raised from the dead, why are people baptized on behalf of the dead. And then he uses his own life as an example. He says, why are we in danger every hour? The sacrifice that we're making in this life is pointless if there's no resurrection. The resurrection is where our hope is placed in. That's why we fought beasts in Ephesus. You really think that's why I'm the madman that I portrayed in, in 2 Corinthians? In 2 Corinthians he tells them that we're we're working like madmen with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day adrift at sea. Frequent journeys. Danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city and in the wilderness and at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardships through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often with cold, without food. He's saying, this is the stuff that we're going through. And apart from all this, we have the daily pressure of all the churches. But in chapter 4, he tells them, we don't, because though our outer self is wasting away, and even though we're going through all these tribulations, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And it's because of this hope that we have in the resurrection. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that's beyond comparison as we look Not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, 
But the things that are unseen are eternal. And the Corinthians had gotten it backwards. They were looking at the things that were seen and they were conforming their beliefs to what they were seeing instead of realizing that the things that are unseen are eternal. They are the more real. And he tells them, if the dead are not raised, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then you're right. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Without the hope of resurrection from the dead, what you do in this body doesn't really matter. It's of hardly any consequence, because tomorrow you're going to die. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Losing sight of the resurrection and the hope it embodies meant losing sight of holiness and a life that was set apart for the kingdom of Christ. Now we might think, well, that's not us. What does this have to do with us? We've never questioned the resurrection from the dead. But I think that we should remember that we can just as easily lose sight of the implication in our life. We become just as now focused as the Corinthians were. Even though we might know better than to say, now there's no resurrection, there's no physical resurrection from the dead. We just as easily become sidetracked from the resurrection and the hope to which we look. And when we lose sight of the eternal purpose that encapsulates our life as believers, we quickly degrade into entertainment-driven, self-centered existence that is evidence of our unspoken belief. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Have you ever seen a society that is more now-focused than the one we live in? We must set our hope on the future resurrection. Does my life bear witness to my faith in that? Or does my life bear witness to the, to the fact that I am most focused on what is now? Then he addresses the mystery of the resurrection. One of the things they were saying was, well, how are the dead raised? There can't be a resurrection because how would a body that is rotting and that becomes soil, how's that going to be raised into something New, something perfect. This sounds a lot like the Sadducees' question to Jesus. Remember when they came to Jesus and they to a corner about the resurrection? And so they said, hey, Jesus, there was this woman that was uh, married and her husband died. She didn't have any kids. Her husband died. And then she married another guy and he died and, and so on. Seven times. Okay, let's make it really complicated. Seven times she got, she got married. And so in the resurrection... Who's going to be her husband? Whose wife is she going to be? And they really thought that their clever reasoning disproved the resurrection from the dead. And Jesus said, you don't know, you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. I'm not even going to reason with you on that, that level of fallacy. You're, you're approaching it all wrong. You're looking at it from an earthly perspective. He didn't even bother engaging their argument. He said, you don't know the power of God. The resurrection is something completely different. We're going to be like the angels. We're not married or given in marriage. It's something that we can't even imagine. And that's something we should get a hold of right now. 
is that the resurrection from the dead is something far beyond the scope of our imagination. So don't limit it to your imagination and your logic. And Paul tells the Corinthians the same thing. What kind of body do they come? And he tells them, you foolish person. What you sow doesn't come to life unless it dies. What comes to life is something completely different. Zai, can I have the projector? What comes to life is something completely different than than what you sow. And they were looking at the physical and saying, well, how can that possibly come back to life in any kind of good or perfect form? So what I wanted to show you was a couple of seeds. They're about this long. They're dark brown on one side. They have some nice lighter corners. Seeds, and you try to imagine what will happen when you throw those seeds into the ground. Let's say they're about that long and about three-eighths inch wide. What do you think will come out of the ground when you put those seeds in the ground? Can any of us look at those seeds and imagine what's going to come out of the ground? We might have kind of an idea because we've seen lots of seeds and we know what different kinds of seeds look like and what comes out of them. But suppose you had never seen what comes out of the ground when a seed is planted and when it dies. Can you imagine? Would, would, your, imagine, would, would your imagination be able to come up with something close by looking at the seed? Not even close. And I wanted to show you what comes out of that seed. It's a beautiful tree called the flamboyant or flame tree. Beautiful, bright red blooms on it. Something that we would never imagine just by looking at this little brown seed. And Paul is telling them the thing is true with regards to your body. You, you, you're trying to rationalize by looking at the body, the human body, and the way that it dies and decomposes and saying, what could possibly come out of that? And he tells them there's, there's a different kind of glory that belongs to the body that is going to be resurrected than what belongs to your body here on earth. What is sown is perishable. It's corruptible. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown as a natural body. It is raised as a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there must also be a spiritual body. And he uses the fact that Adam was created as a natural body and therefore we all have natural bodies. And he compares that to Christ who was resurrected as a spiritual being and ascended to God. And he says, if there is a natural body, there must also be a spiritual body. The first man from earth, the man of dust, the second man from heaven, the image of the man of dust. So we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. There's a mystery here. And in the next couple of verses, Paul gets caught up in the breathtaking mystery of the resurrection. The fact that our mortal, corruptible, sinful, sick, dying, disgusting bodies go down into the ground and they turn back to dust. The fact that God is going to raise those bodies up 
into something perfect, immortal, imperishable. In the image of Christ, the spiritual man, it will be a spiritual body. He's saying, yes, you can't wrap your imagination around this. But don't let that deter you from setting your hope in it. When everything around you says the only thing that matters is the physical, set your hope on the eternal. Because that's what's more real. That's what gives us hope in this life. And he gets caught up in this mystery. He says, I tell you, flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now, he's not saying that means that your perishable body goes down into the ground and it stays there and that's the end of it. And that only your spirit goes to God. But he's saying it won't stay perishable. It won't stay corruptible. We are not all going to sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Just like that, God is going to change us from something corruptible, something that will die if Jesus doesn't come back before he dies. We'll be changed from that to something incorruptible to the spiritual man the trumpet will sound and the dead shall be raised imperishable incorruptible not subject to death anymore and we shall be changed when the perishable puts on the imperishable then comes to pass then comes to pass the saying that is written oh death where is your sting oh death Where is your victory? Then comes to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. How many times have you heard that quoted in a futuristic tense? We we almost always hear it said, you know, at funerals. Oh, death, where is your sting? Hey, I'm going to tell you something. Death still does have a sting. Yes, we don't mourn as those who don't have hope. But when your loved one lies there in a coffin, death hurts. It's pain, scorpion sting of death. Its real power has been removed. And when this resurrection happens, then will come to pass the saying, death, where is your sting? We're going to look back at it and we're we're going to say it was removed. Because death was just an entrance into what is real. Into the eternal. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God. Who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Christ came. And he lived above the power of sin. The strength of sin is in the law. He perfectly fulfilled all the requirements of the law. 100%. Therefore, his blood was the perfect atonement. And because his blood was the perfect atonement, and because he was sinless, he was raised from the dead. As proof that we are going to be raised from the dead. But, Paul says, there's an order of things. Christ first. He was already raised. He's already ascended. He's already at the right hand of God. But when he comes back, then those who belong to Christ. Therefore, 
At the end of all this, he tells them, Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Because Christ was raised from the dead, in vain, because you are no longer in your sins, if Christ was raised from the dead, because all the sufferings that we encounter and the tribulations that we go through in this life have an eternal reward. They're working for us a far more weighty eternal reward because our physical bodies are going to be raised. Because as we've borne the image of the man of dust, so we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. We're going to be like Jesus in the same way that we were like Adam. And our imaginations can't begin to comprehend that. Because ultimately, all things, all the enemies of Christ will be subjected, will be put into subjection under his feet. And because Christ was raised as the first fruits of those of us who will follow, who will also be raised in his likeness because of this. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. If your hope is not set on a literal resurrection from the dead, on a literal eternity in which you will be in the presence of the Lord, in which you will be in the likeness of the spiritual man, Jesus. If your hope is not that on that, your life will be empty and worthless. And then he goes into chapter 16 and he wraps up with, with a couple of final instructions and, and uh, salutations. And he tells them, be watchful, stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. You need to be reminded to be strong in your faith. Because if you don't, if you don't remind yourself continually, your faith is going to waver. Let all that you do be done in love. And he closes with, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. What a beautiful ending to this book where he tells the Corinthians, place your hope in Christ. That's where true wisdom is. That's where true unity in the body is, is in the cross of Christ. Place your hope in Christ. That's where the body begins to function as a healthy unit to really be the body on earth. Place your hope in Christ and set your hope on the resurrection that is to come. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen.